welcome to episode two of Hoco Cast, the local podcast sponsored by the Howard County Library System. We are Baz, Daniel, Emmy, and Olivia, bringing you local Howard County happenings from good reads to planting seeds. To honor the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, the Hoco Cast team interviewed local environmentalist Kiara Demore. Listen as we learned about the important ways the Community Ecology Institute is providing access to nature programs for everyone in Howard County. Kiara Damore holds a PhD in Sustainability Education and MS in Environmental Science and Engineering. She is a founder and executive director for the Community Ecology Institute at Freetown Farm and also teaches graduate students in environmental sustainability. After working as an environmental consultant for 13 years, her work is now focused on fostering environmental and social well-being through reconnecting people within natural environment, as well as designing, implementing, and evaluating environmental programs. Learn more at www.kiaradamore.com. So as a child, were you always interested in nature and education? You mentioned growing up on a hobby farm on your website. So how did this mold your experience? That is a great starting question. So um, we moved a lot when I was a child. So I got exposed to quite a few ecosystems. And my parents definitely made it a priority that I be outside in those different spaces. I was born in Virginia Beach right by the water. So some of my earliest memories of, are of the ocean. And that's distant um, home base for me throughout my life with the moving a lot as a child. And then um, I've been in Columbia since I was in fourth grade, but then I left for about 10 years after um, for college and then for early work before moving back 12 years ago. And I've always had my mom's family in Virginia Beach. So that, that early time at the ocean, consistently, consistently having that be um, a part of my life is definitely um, really important to me. Some of my fondest memories are, are at the beach there. And then we actually lived in Saudi Arabia for several years. Um, my, my father was there building greenhouses um, in the late 70s, early 80s. And so one of my favorite smells is actually is a smell of tomato leaves. Um, unique smell, but that's where I would run around, sort of in and around the, the greenhouses there. And then we moved back to Virginia Beach in the ocean again before moving to Illinois is where I referenced the farm. We lived on a, a farm that's actually probably about the size of the farm that we just purchased through the Community Ecology Institute. And it had a small stream running through it with some willow trees. And I just spent innumerable hours playing out there with my brother and with our dog. And our boats. It was idyllic. And those are really, that was, um, you know, in the, in the first, second grade time frame. And I think that's when people start to have memories that shift from being more snapshots to movie quality, if you will. Like I really remember that time being allowed to freely play um, at the farm. And then when we moved to Maryland in Columbia, there's all the open space. I definitely feel like I was at the end of a generation of kids that were allowed to just go out and play down in the stream and to kind of go out and muck about. Things definitely started to shift um, in my peer group as I think video games became more prevalent and extracurriculars became more heavily scheduled. I was still encouraged to just go out and play and get dirty. So it's, it's been a theme really from my earliest memories throughout my entire life. 
clearly have a lot of um, roots in nature, but did you ever consider switching to a different field? It's a really interesting question as well. So um, on both sides of my family, there are a tremendous number of artists, whether it's um, portrait artistry or florist or stained glass or photography or musicians, the arts are really prevalent. Um, spent a ton of time drawing and, and making art um, as a child. And when my maternal grandmother passed away when I was 14, I made a very conscious decision that I was not going to follow in her footsteps and be an artist. She actually, um, she was a phenomenal portrait artist and was really dear to me and very influential in my life. And she got pneumonia, had health insurance. And so she ended up waiting too long to go to the hospital. And um, by the time she was able to get care, it was too late. And so kind of at that time when she passed, I decided that I needed to have, um, you know, quote, quote, unquote, in my mind, a real job that would afford me more financial stability and health insurance and that I was not going to be in this because I didn't want to um, experience that. So that was that really sort of is in my bones is art. And so I've been slowly coming back to that in the last four or five years. I now make art on a regular basis again. Um, so there's that thread, but then what I was doing professionally um, for about 13 years was consulting. And I was consulting in the environmental space, but it was you know commuting to DC to work in a big building in the city on my computer. And it was not at all um, in contact with nature. It was more basic energy efficiency and program design. And that's all really good work, but it had no connection to the living world directly. And it definitely didn't feel um, passionate. So the work I've been doing in the recent years has been a very intentional effort to take my environmental work and reconnect it to nature. So it has been an evolution um, for me in terms of what that work looks like. And to go back a bit, what led to the foundation of Columbia Families in Nature and later the Community Ecology Institute at Freetown Farm? I would say, kind of referencing um, what I just shared about wanting to take my environmental work that was um, very intellectually rewarding, but really sort of in the brown side of the environment. I had a, a teacher say there's really the brown side of environmental work, which is energy, infrastructure, waste, all really important things. And then there's the green side of environmental work, which is really dealing with ecosystems and plants and people, the things that are alive. And so I, I really wanted to shift that. Um, it became clear and clear to me the longer I worked in the consulting space. Um, and then when I had my first child 10 years ago, it was sort of a, a major transition point in my life. I wanted to find a way to have a life that felt like a whole life, not one in which my desires to be a really involved mom or in direct conflict with my career, my vocation and working for a large firm, that was the case. It was um, you know, the norm to put in 50 or 60 hours a week at work, which would leave very little time to be um, a present mother. So I started really thinking about how to create a life that felt more integrated and more whole. And I had been exploring the idea of going back to school for my doctorate pretty much since I had finished my master's. Um, I just have always really loved to learn and I always felt like there was um, a desire in me to become deeply immersed in a specific area of study. And I kept hearing about this one program at Prescott College in sustainability education. And I think when I heard from it about it from maybe the seventh person, I was like, okay, I need, <laughs> I need to really look at this. 
And so my son was about a year and a half when I sat down and really looked at the program, realized that it absolutely met the criteria of what I was looking for, um, specifically designed for mid-career professionals who are embedded in their communities. And, um, and so I applied and I was like, well, if I get in, then I'll think about going. And then um, I was accepted and I was like, well, if I get a, a research assistantship, then I'll go. And I got that. So when my son was um, in just a little bit before turning two, I started a doctoral program. Um, and Columbia Families in Nature is what emerged as my research. I was really, um, the big question I was really interested in is how is it that some people really care deeply about the environment and for other people, it's just not, um, on their radar, it's not a priority. And there's a lot to that. And you can take a look at a lot of socioeconomic reasons why some um, members of our communities just don't have the bandwidth perhaps to deal with environmental issues. But when you get at it from like a, a personal intrinsic motivation perspective, there's this really amazing kind of line of research that says, if you can get people outside, especially when they're young, if you give them a role model for taking care of the environment, like a grandparent that helps identify plants or um, a teacher that encourages them to help clean up around their neighborhood, just somebody who kind of teaches that ethic of nature um, being something to care for would be the second thing. And the third thing would be the participation in some sort of organization that gives you a chance to feel like you can make a difference. And for, I think for a lot of people that scouts when they're younger, you go out and you maybe clean up a stream or you pick up trash. Um, for some people, it might be an environmental club in their high school or their college, but actually feeling like you can make a difference within the context of a group would be the third thing. That if you can give people those three experiences, they're really likely to carry um, an ethic of care for the environment with them their whole lives, no matter what they do professionally. And I thought that was fascinating. Um, and then I went to a conference by the author of a book called Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Ch Children from Nature Deficit Disorder. And in the conference, they talked about the idea of a family nature club as being something that they had seen in some communities as a way to try to help um, get families back outside. Like I mentioned, I felt like I was at the end of the era of kids being allowed to just go out and play. And there's definitely been this tremendous cultural retreat indoors. People spend more than 90% of their time inside, typically. We're in weird times right now with COVID, but, um, and, and you can't just let your kids go out and play at a wide range anymore. You would potentially get in trouble for doing that, and it's just not the norm. And so family nature clubs seek to help families get re-familiar um, with the natural areas in their community, help them know where to go, what to do, and create that sense of comfort again and connection again to nature. And I had this another sort of epiphany moment where family nature clubs could be designed to intentionally offer those three life experiences that get people to care about the environment. So all that to say that I started Columbia Families Nature as my doctoral research to see what would happen if you created a family nature club that specifically sought to get kids out in nature and to provide a role model for taking care of the environment and then gave the opportunity to feel like they can make a difference. So that program just turned six on the spring equinox and we've offered over 253 events in the community. And it's been over like 20,000 hours of time outdoors. It's, it's been incredibly rewarding. My daughter is seven now, so she's literally grown up in, in the program. Um, she was just starting to walk when we offered the first event. So yeah, it's been really rewarding. So that's where that comes from. And then um, when I finished my research, I didn't know if anybody was going to show up, but we had over 100 people at the first event. 
So it seemed like it really actually was meeting uh, a need and an interest in the community. And my school was able to ask, act as a fiscal sponsor um, for the program so I could apply for some grants so I didn't have any out-of-pocket expenses to buy field guides and you know other things that made the, um, the events more enriching. And it was so successful that when I finished, I think about you know, how could I continue it and grow it. I certainly didn't want to stop the program. Um, and then, you know, what further impact could I have in that same space based on my research? And so the Community Ecology Institute is four years old now and came out of a desire to grow the impact that I saw out of Columbia Families in Nature and, and to expand the footprint. And just the, you know, the practical need to have a, an organization from which to run a program like that. Thank you for being that environmental role model. I'm sure there's so many people who have benefited off of that. So that is just absolutely amazing. You certainly wear a lot of hats as an educator, researcher, <laughs> writer. And so how are you able to maintain your great passion even when the work piles up and seems daunting? I think the passion is intrinsic. Where I get my greatest source of comfort and ease and energy is from being in nature. Sometimes I like to be outside alone, but really I love to be in nature and community and to see people's faces light up when they have these um, really meaningful moments for themselves or with their family. It's just, um, it's my happiest place. So that's what keeps it going. I've worked to try to um, hone in on where I can bring the most value, what my personal kind of highest, best use is for my time and energy. So. There definitely have been periods of time that felt um, like profoundly overwhelming, especially last year with trying to purchase Shaw Farm. Um, we had a very small window of time in which we could achieve that goal. So last year was uh, really exhausting, even though that passion was there. And I think just the, the years of having really young children while working full time, while being in school time were also profoundly exhausting and overwhelming. So I'm coming out of some of those phases really trying to look at how can I um, you know, take care of myself too while trying to help care for my community and the environment. And if I don't do a good job of balancing those, um, I won't be able to take care of my community and the environment. So it's, it's, a, it's a really fluid and constant um, requirement to be honest with myself about my capacity to um, learn to build bigger and deeper teams to realize that this is not a sprint, it's a marathon, and to, to think about you know, what my best use is now. So there was a period of time where I think I was serving on four boards of directors for different environmental groups and nonprofits, and I've stepped back from all my other work um, in that space so I can really focus my energy on the Community Ecology Institute and the farm. Um, and then I have a, a real passion around climate action. So trying to make sure that our efforts on the farm have a climate action focus. So I feel like I can do that work within that space too and don't need to do that work separate um, from, from the nonprofit. So I'm trying to consolidate and focus my energies and just be um, honest about asking for help and open to receiving it too. So. Yeah, well, that sounds great. So you were mentioning how it's kind of like um, a marathon. So in what, what stage of that marathon do you think you are in purchasing and reforming Shaw Farms? Uh, what can the community expect to see upon completion? So it's a really 
cool story. Um, like maybe someday I should write a book. I got an email the week of the summer solstice of 2018. And it said, I hear you're looking for a farm. And I did not know the person that sent me the email, but I've been looking for a farm since I was like eight. And it was a woman who's the Howard County Agricultural Liaison. And she was working with Mr. Shaw to try to find somebody who would purchase his farm that he had owned for 38 years and commit to keeping an agriculture and would commit to not letting it be developed. And so she, it never went on the market because a developer would have snapped it up in a heartbeat. The adjacent lot is now, uh, I believe, 24 or 26 townhouses. So I, that was part of what spurred him on to look for a buyer is he didn't want to see that become the fate of this um, farm and this land that he really loved and had been stewarding um, for so long. So I immediately love with it. I actually just live and grew up two miles down the road. Um, the farm is just behind Appleton High School in Harriet Tubman Lane, and I didn't know it existed. I was shocked that there was a farm with a Columbia address. Um, and so we began thinking organizationally about whether or not this was something that we could do. And we're a very small nonprofit. We were much smaller then. We were entirely volunteer run until October when I was hired as a part-time executive director. Um, so at that time we didn't have any staff. And so what was sort of miraculous was I had applied for a leadership Howard County project um, before even knowing about the farm. And then we were accepted for the project. And when we met with our leadership Howard County premier team, they were getting to know about our organization. And I mentioned that, you know, at some point in time, we'd really like to have land of our own. Um, and I gave them the example of Shaw Farm as something that would be ideal for us because it is centrally located, it's urban, it's accessible, um, it's a small enough size to be manageable. And they're like, why aren't you going for it? I was like, well, because we're tiny. And so the leadership Howard County premier team really gave us that extra bandwidth and skill set to be able to pursue purchasing the farm. We um, we had until February 15th of 2019 to put together a commitment of interest. And then we only had until May 15th to be able to demonstrate that we had the funds in hand to purchase the farm. We had to close by June 30th. Those were the terms of sale um, per Mr. Shaw. And so it was just like this incredible, like Herculean feat to be able to raise over $200,000 in three months to be able to um, purchase this farm. So we did close um, one week to the date from the time I first saw the farm. So it's been like nine months that we have been the stewards of the farm. It's uh, 6.4 acres. He farmed it organically. We're going a step beyond organic to regenerative agriculture. And it's been largely um, a sort of a getting to know you and a cleanup exercise to date. There, you know, if you can imagine a farm that's been in one family's hands for almost four decades. There's a, just a lot of stuff there. Um, some of it's useful for us, some of it we needed to clean up. The fields had been um, untended for about three years. And so there was just eye high weeds and old rusted fencing that needed to come down. We've really just been working to understand how the water flows, where are the sunny spots, how bad the groundhog problem is, which is pretty bad, um, and, and really getting land. But we've um, we were able to donate, donate hundreds of pounds of produce to Grassroots Crisis Intervention Center across the street last summer. And we're working really hard right now to um, maximize the amount of food that we can grow for the community during the COVID-19 crisis. We wanna be able to food for communities and families in need. So it's about, it's about um, getting growing right now. So we did just rename it Freetown Farm. 
through a process where we asked for input from everybody that helped us um, purchase the farm. And that references the really important history of um, the land there. So it is protected. It can never be developed. Um, it's deed restricted from that. And now we just have a, a long journey ahead to maximize the agricultural and educational benefits for the community. Yeah, wow. Well, you clearly have a lot of, uh, a lot of, I guess, accomplishments and community impact surrounding Freetown Farms. But what do you see as the greatest potential impact being? Right now, I've been thinking a lot about resilience, especially in crisis. Um, so resilience is really about being able to maintain the essential character of some sort of entity, whether it's a person or a family or a community. Um, or an ecosystem in the face of challenges. And so how, how can we, as a community, if we just want to look at Howard County, um, really be resilient in the face of crises like COVID-19, um, the climate crisis is going to create many, many challenges that already has, like we've seen with the Ellicott City flooding. What can we do to make sure that our local systems are really well connected and supported so that we can weather these storms um, as well as possible and ideally come out more connected and in some ways, different ways, stronger than perhaps we were before. So I think to me, this idea of um, like a re-emphasis on the local, not to say that we won't continue to be connected more broadly, those broader connections are really important, but when systems start to break down, how do we make sure that we're meeting as many of our needs locally as we can? How do we know our neighbors well enough that we can be there to support one another? And so I think the Community Ecology Institute is really well poised to help people pause and think about and learn skills and develop knowledge around things that support resilience. So whether it's growing your own food or feeling like you can take action around climate change in your own household or building community, really getting to know your neighbors, getting to know people who have similar interests and passions or um, learning skills that maybe our grandparents and great grandparents knew, but most of us have really lost, like, again, growing food, but then preserving food, um, how to fix things that are broken, you know, those sorts of, um, that knowledge and skill building around um, local networks and resilience, I think is something that has been appealing to a certain niche of people um, already, but I think a much broader um, portion of the community is likely to have interest in developing that knowledge after going through this crisis. In, in these times, you know, that is really inspiring to hear, so thank you. And for all of our teens listening, how can they take their own environmentally driven dream and try to make an impact in this world or in their community? You know, it's cliche, but, you know, the, the youth of today really are so important and, um, powerful and how things are going to change, especially as um, they get to voting age, but not only at that point in time. Um, one of the areas of focus that we have is called civic engagement. So we kind of talk about four C's within our organization's connection to nature being number one. Um, everything we do has to be related to that. And then it's community health. You know, ideally there's the mental health, the physical health benefits of being connected to nature. And we talk about civic um, ecology, which just really means getting out and taking care of the environment in a group context, whether that's creating a community garden or um, collectively taking care of a stream bed. It's, it's that kind of civic engagement with the focus on the environment. And that's a lot of what we've done. And then there's, there's the climate action piece. So I would say 
for teens listening, um, first and foremost, you know, cultivate whatever relationship that you do have with the natural environment, whether it's, you know, a balcony or a patio in your apartment, just sitting out and watching the, the trees and the wind. It's a very windy day to day. Have much of a relationship with nature, starting to build that. It's so important for mental health to be outside, even if it's just for 10 minutes a day in any setting, just watching the clouds go by, um, taking care of yourselves in that way, in a way that um, really nurtures mental and emotional health through being outdoors, I think is the foundation, because it also starts to, again, um, make a personal connection for why caring about the environment matters. So I'd say that would be the first place to start. Um, and then looking for opportunities to join forces to make some kind of a difference. And once we're allowed to convene again in groups, there are a lot of opportunities um, through the Community Ecology Institute at the farm to come out and volunteer, to do educational programming, um, to learn some of those lost arts or some of that ancestral knowledge. So we really invite and welcome teens. We've had, um, Appleton High School students over every week um, since we got the farm. The Howard County Teen Interfaith um, Network is the group that's responsible for helping us run our Climate Victory Garden. Um, and we had a, a teen group from Leadership Howard County come out. So we actually would like to engage that segment of our population as much as possible. So please come out and join us when we can do that again. I think seeing those specific ways that people can um, take action, it, it, we think about reduce, reuse, recycle a lot, but there are, I think are other um, more meaningful and enriching things that can be done that um, are hopeful. And, you know, I'm a research wonk. And so one of the things that I think is most interesting in the realm of research is that no matter how dire people's circumstances are around the world and through time people have always planted gardens as a sign of hope um, whether that's in a refugee or in other really um, serious areas of crisis and disaster people turn to planting seeds and growing food as a way to feel like they're um, showing some hope for the future and i think that's something we're really excited to be able to offer as a really accessible place for people to come out and learn how to literally plant seeds and grow things, but it's um, partially for that sense of, of looking towards the future in a hopeful way as well. Uh, yeah, that's a beautiful statement. And as someone who's so passionate about, you know, nature, the environment, and getting people involved, like all across the board of all ages, what do you believe in as an ideal world? Would that be steps to manage climate change, more family farms, possibly getting more teens involved and getting out of the house a bit more? What do you see? And I might answer in the context of what I'm hoping for is silver linings from the COVID-19 crisis. You, know, you have to see everything through the lens of equity. I think um, equity and the environment go hand in hand. So the way the crisis is impacting people is not, not equitable. I've heard some people say it's like a great equalizer, and I refute that statement completely. I don't think that that's true. Um, but to the extent that the crisis is allowing people to slow down and um, think a little bit more deeply about core priorities and values, thinking about where things come from, um, thinking about how to make sure everybody has enough, thinking about um, the people that 
matter to them the most and how we do or do not engage with them. I think there's something hopeful and beautiful about um, some of what we're being made to really look critically at right now that in our kind of fast paced grow, 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 acquire, acquire, do, do um, sort of cultural mentality we have um, lost touch with. So I'm, I think we'll be going to a different normal after this. I don't think it's a, a full step back to the way things were. And I'm hoping that in some ways it's a really beautiful thing. Um, so I, I do think slowing down, absolutely being more closely connected to people, to our neighbors, to our community, to where we get things from, it's all about, um, again, creating that resilience, which I think is really necessary as we look at some really big global issues. Um, you know, again, it's cliche, but the, the think globally, act locally has stuck around for so long because there's something really true about that because there's only so much you or I can do about global crises, but there's always something we can do in the context of the choices we make in our day-to-day -day lives. So I think people are a little bit more clear about um, some of those choices. And I think that's a, a really positive thing. I will always advocate for people taking the time to be outdoors again, because it's so important for mental and emotional and physical health. And I don't think anybody can bring their best to the world if they're not um, taking care of themselves in that way. And it forges really beautiful bonds and relationships when we're in connection with people outside. Um, it's one of the things about Columbia Families Nature that I love is you'll see families that don't know each other at all helping one another, um, you know, get across a log or forge a stream or plant a tree and, and those bonds that are made when we are outdoors together doing something positive um, are, are really deep and long lasting. So, um, you know, I, I see, I guess, a world where there's, there's time and space and care for people to slow down enough to do things that matter for them personally and matter for getting to a shift towards the way we um, treat one another and the way we treat the environment. We have um, kind of a framework for how we're doing things on the farm. It's called permaculture design and it pulls directly from a variety of indigenous knowledge systems to think about how we get to a more permanent culture, permaculture. Um, and it, it's largely agricultural but it's also been applied to the way we envision our local communities. And it's all um, based on three core ethics, which is people care, planet care, and fair share. And I think for me, the COVID-19 crisis is really shining a light on that. It's that we have to care for each other. And we're seeing these amazing things crop up in the community. Like there's a group that just emerged called Columbia Community Cares, where we're trying to, people who lead that are trying to make sure that the people in deepest crisis in the community have their basic needs met. Um, and it's just like this emergent thing that now has thousands of volunteers helping. And it's just a few few weeks old, it's incredible. Um, so it's people care, you know, planet care, really making sure we're taking care of the environment on which we completely depend. And then it's fair share. Like if we are all taking what we need, but not hoarding um, or being greedy, there is enough to go around. Um, and that connects to people care, planet care. So I think there's, um, People might not be articulating it that way, but to me, those ethics are being really um, re-examined in this time of the COVID crisis and thinking about how we um, get at, I think primarily fair share and people care, but there's the environmental part there as well. Um, I think it's going to um, 
shift as we get to the other side of this. Yeah, well, that is really a sounds like an amazing place. You know, it's great to see communities helping each other out. Um, I'd love to see more of that in the future. And I totally agree. This whole um, COVID-19 outbreak has really given us time to think about the world around us. I think it's been a great time for us to slow down, really get to know your neighbors a little bit, but not too much, you know, social distancing, but <laughs> get to know one another, get to know the world around you. I really think it's been an interesting time period, certainly one that'll be talked about in the future. Um, and maybe it'll be enough to spark a bit of a change, I guess we'll have to see. Yeah, I think we, we will. It's interesting that the roads are much um, more empty, but the pathways and sidewalks sure are much more full than usual. And it's, um, you know, people need to be maintaining the proper space, but it's actually sort of a beautiful thing to see so many people out walking and biking. It's just really not the norm. Um, and hopefully that connection will see us through this tough time, but also um, it won't fade away as soon as we're allowed um, to gather again. Thank you so much. Your insights have been really amazing and it's clear your passion for your um, project and your community is really true and really there. And it's amazing to see someone so passionate really giving that passion back to the community. So thank you so much. And we really wish you luck and, you know, success for everything, all the projects that you're currently working on and everything in the future. Well, thank you. And you have an open invitation to come out and take a, a tour of Freetown Farm when, um, when we're able to do that. And it would be wonderful to be able to share that space. Thank you all. Please be well. Of course, this wouldn't be HokoCast without a dive into some exciting titles in the realm of sci-fi, dystopia, and the environment. All three certainly illustrate current issues in society, and most importantly, how we can learn from them and ultimately make the world a better place. For my sci-fi recommendation, I'd like to suggest Origin by Dan Brown. Though set in the not-too-distant future, Origin takes a look at the possibilities available with artificial intelligence and what might happen to humanity as technology progresses. Following Dan Brown's favorite symbologist, Robert Langdon is thrown into yet another mystery, this time in Spain. Robert is invited to futurist Edmund Kirsch's unveiling of his latest discovery when everything starts to go horribly wrong. Origin is a novel that examines religion's role in the technological revolution while still looking ahead. The novel is definitely one that places action over everything else, going at a non-stop pace except to express awe at the beauty of Spain's architecture and other works of art. If you want a blend of mystery and sci-fi, Origin delivers a fresh take on the genres that you won't want to miss. I recently read a great nonfiction book called Mama's Last Hug by prominent primatologist Franz DeWall. The book opens with a chimpanzee matriarch called Mama, who in her final moments give a hug to a biologist with whom she had formed a close bond. The embrace went viral, as sweet moments between animals and humans often do, but what is emotion? Do animals actually have them? Franz DeWall argues yes, and his book is rife for social experiments that prove this. In the end, animals and humans are far more similar than different in the reasons we love, fight, and display emotion. So we should consider the ways we can help our animal friends, especially since we all benefit from peaceful coexistence. While I'm not the biggest sci-fi fan out there, even I have a few classics you must read. Among my favorites, I have to recommend Scythe by Neil Shusterman. 
I first read the book in middle school and have been avidly following the trilogy since. In a world where death by natural causes has been eliminated, a form of population control must exist in order to keep the balance. Scythes. Scythes are a community of the human race whose only job is to kill people when their time comes. Join our main characters Citra and Rowan as they are selected to be the next generation of Scythes in a world controlled by technology under the rule of the Thunderhead, a mysterious being who controls this society. This trilogy will keep you on your toes as it explores dark ideas of being taught to be a killer or risking the consequences of refusing your fate. The science fiction book that I would like to recommend to you is called The Second Coming of Walter Clements. It's a story about time travel. In particular, it is the story of Walter Clements, under his alter ego of Ben Silva, as he hops through different dimensions and periods of time on the run from the government. I found this story to be intriguing, unique, at times humorous, and overall a captivating tale. If you're interested in time travel, science fiction, or in Roman civilization, you might want to get The Second Coming of Walter Clements a look. In light of our current situation, I'd like to share a rap about coronavirus. The world's afraid. Leaders lambasting other government officials, speaking of unity one moment and warfare the next, fighting not just against stigma but discrimination, people hating, profiling just because of a cough, and that's not the worst of it. Citizens walking down empty grocery store aisles, wondering if the food in the freezer, if that money tucked away will be enough to carry them on. Coronavirus. Corona is defined as something suggesting a crown, the king of viruses, currently going viral on the internet. But we've been through this. We know about corrupt kings, corrupt countries, spreading influence around the world, marking victories, and human bondage and triumph and imperialism. So, no, we didn't choose this, but we can get over it. Every history class learns about the resistance, what happens when kings get too big for their britches. And now, it's not just one people group against the world. We've got the scientists, the leaders, the activists all up in a world of science, law, making people safer. So, yeah, it's bad right now. Not going to lie, but if we can keep it together, Together, check in with our neighbors, wash our hands for the millionth time. We've got a shot because, like it or not, coronavirus turned life upside down, but we each have the power to uplift each other and ensure the world keeps spinning to see another dawn. Hello to all from the HokoCast team during this troubling time as we deal with COVID 19. That was an unintentional rhyme. I hope you all are finding ways to stay healthy, safe, and entertained as you spend your time at home with your families. This is, of course, a difficult time for many of us, financially, emotionally, and mentally. But let's remember that we're all in this together, and we will see to it that we come out on the other side. As we struggle to stay amused during the COVID-19 quarantine, I hope that you find time to try a new hobby, or do that task you've been meaning to do. Pick up a new book, maybe one we've recommended, or try drawing. But above all, remember to stay safe and stay at home, unless absolutely necessary. We've all been handling a lot in this tumultuous time that is a pandemic. I've personally been turning to the arts to work through what's happening and what I've been feeling. As this occurs, I've been pondering a question posed to me by a family member that all relate to you. What will the future significance of the mask be in art? It's already appearing on magazine covers, but how will expression be changed by the pandemic? Thanks for listening today. Since April is National Poetry Month, the HokoCast team is issuing a Found Poetry Challenge. Found Poetry takes existing works, such as from a newspaper or magazine article, 
from a section of your favorite book, or even from the questions in a BuzzFeed quiz, and refashions, reorders, and presents those words as a poem. Find more information in the show notes on how to submit your poem for our next episode. Stay safe. Stay safe. Stay safe. Stay safe. Stay safe.